in football, is it better to be big or small? Big. Big. How big? Uh, about as big as me. Big as me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're saying I'm about the size of a football player? Yeah. A little shorter though. Little, a little shorter. Yeah. Uh, so what would be your like your dance after you score? Mm. Oh yeah. Step that, on it. everyone. Let's just see that up front. Boom. Boom. I like that. All right, we got a little cheer there. Yeah. What's something big? Uh, a football stadium? A stadium. Football stadium? Monster uh, What's the biggest number that you can think of? Oh, infinity and beyond. Infinity and beyond? That should be in a movie. It keeps It is. What? Who is the biggest, strongest person that you know? Those are all, you know Goliath? <laughs> Who is the biggest heart that you know? Yes, ma'am. A great white whale. A great white whale. <laughs> Would you rather hang out with someone really cool or someone way less cool? Less, um, less. I think like, to make them feel bad. Yeah, I'll be yeah. Someone yeah. that is bad. Yeah, and. Not gonna lie, you two have just derailed me. I went the I'm going to move on. What was your answer? Someone cool. Someone cool. Okay. So if you and your super cool friend had a secret handshake, what would that might look like? Girls are cool. Girls are cool. Girls are cool. So clearly I'm not your super cool friend. Okay, moving on. Um, so do you think it's better to look up or to look down? Up. So you can see where you're going. Up, because you can run into someone if you're looking down. Yep. What if someone throws your frisbee and you're looking down? It's gonna probably hit you. Yeah, yesterday, yesterday when I was online at my softball game, and the catch was throwing the ball to someone, it hit me in the head. Are you serious? Ow. Were you looking down? I was in line. Oh. So, bottom line, it's better to look up. Yes. Yes. Now okay. you can look at God. Okay. And you'd rather hang out with someone less super cool than less cool. Yeah. Less cool. And, Matthew, less well, cool and cool. Well, the, the, cool. the less cool kind of throws off what I'm trying to accomplish here. Cool. We'll just say more cool. Okay. And then it's better to be bigger than less small. Cool. Less cool? Yeah. yeah. That way other people don't feel bad. That you can learn to play with. That's they super sweet, actually. They can learn how to be so cool. cool. They, can learn, they can learn how to be cool. Your parents are really good at what they do. Thank you. should have ended with that. You know, there's a flurry of emotions right now. Stacy's hoping I don't do something dumb. The teenagers are thinking, is Shane lost? What's he doing? Some of the adults are thinking, that's the wrong Whittington. The Iron Sharpers are thinking, oh boy. Joe David's thinking, who gave him the big Devo? And I share all of those concerns. <laughs> you know, if I were to preach one time, which very well might be the case, if I preach one time, there's really only a small hand, handful of topics that I would preach on, this is one of those. So to me, this is so near, so dear. You know, the most important thing God gave us, I'm talking about our feet and our hands and, and our mouth, is the heart. 
that is by far the most important thing that God gave us. You know, if my hands are doing the right thing and my feet are doing the right thing and my mind's in the right place and everything is good, but my heart is hard, eventually sin and evil has a way to creep in. And without a soft heart there, I, I would dare say there's no way to come back to God. But on the contrary, if my hands are deep in sin and my feet are in sin and my mind is in sin, but I have a soft heart that is in tune with God, God has a beautiful way of illuminating a path for us to come back to Him. There's nothing more important than the heart. And as I think about this concept of the heart, I, you're probably thinking of various parables and scriptures, and you almost can't even turn a page in scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, without having the heart jump off the page, whether directly or indirectly, rather between the, the actual lines or, or specifically talked about. But I thought of one thing, this description that was given to David about being a man after God's own heart, and which kind of begs the question, why? Why was David, out of all the people in Scripture, given this description? And I immediately start thinking about Saul. And if you have been in church very long whatsoever, you know Saul was the first king of Israel. And David was number two. And honestly, if I were writing the, the history and the, and the story of the Israelite people, my hero is the number one guy. My hero is the first king, but for some reason, that's not the way it played out. Saul did good things, and David did some bad things. But David was described before he was even king as being a man for God's own heart and after he was king. So what I want to do is a good old-fashioned fourth grade, I don't know if they do this anymore, but back in my fourth grade, a good old-fashioned compare and contrast David and Saul. And I want to look at this concept specifically on why he was called a man after God's own heart. And the way that we're going to do this is we're going to be in Scripture a lot. So I really encourage you, if there, there's Bibles in your pew, get your phone out. We're going to be living in First and Second Samuel. We're going to read a lot of Scripture, so I apologize. But so stay with me. Hopefully it's interrupted enough with my blabbering that you guys can stay awake. So what we're going to do is we're, we're going to look at three emotional states that honestly I think totally and completely transcend time, age, uh, poor, rich, whatever, your, whatever the difference is between you and I and David and people 2,000 years from now, these emotional states transcend all those. And so what we're going to do is we are first going to look at Saul in a moment of celebration. So Paul, I'm going to turn around and read this here. Uh, in 1 Samuel 13, verses 2 through 4, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Geba and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outposts, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. What happened? Well, Jonathan attacked the Philistines. What was communicated? The trumpets were blown, and Saul 
has destroyed the Philistines. Well, he stole the celebration from his son Jonathan. Though Jonathan won the victory, Saul stole it. And you might say, well, he was the king. He should claim the victory. And I wouldn't argue that at that point, but if you start going down that kind of that logic train, then who is the true king of Israel? Who is the Lord of Israel? And nowhere in this moments of communication do you give do you hear credit being given to Jonathan or God Almighty? In his celebration, Saul wanted everyone to know it was about Saul. Let's go look at David. David in a moment of celebration. This is in 2 Samuel 6, 13 through 22. When those who were carried, this is the longest reading, so bear with me. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf wearing a linen ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord, the shouts and the sound of trumpets as the Dave, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the, women went, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. This was a big deal. The Ark of the Covenant coming back into Jerusalem was met with total celebration, fearful celebration, because they knew what that Ark was, the resting place of God. The, this, this was a powerful moment of, of celebration. It was being led by none other than King David himself. And his wife sees him from the window. It is not just annoyed with him, but is disgusted with the way that she thinks he is acting, the way that he's celebrating, the way he's demeaning himself. He gets home, and she gets on to him, and he doesn't stand for it. And he says, this is not for you. This is not for me. This is not for the people. I am celebrating God. This is huge. And if I look a full so be it. And then he almost doubles down toward the end in verse 22. And he, he says, if God's celebration calls me to look even more, more ridiculous than I already look, so be it. I'm all in. This is about God. In celebration, David wanted everyone to know it's not about me. This is about God. I celebrate. I don't care how I look. This celebration is about God. I'm going to move on to our second emotional state, and that is of worry. 
This is a story of Saul and worry found in 1 Samuel 13, 7 through 12. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all his troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. What a classic scene. Saul's waiting, waiting. The men are getting nervous, starting to scatter. Saul's getting more nervous. And so he just decides, I'm going to take matters in my own hands. He makes the sacrifice, not because he's wanting the Lord's favor. This is my thoughts. I believe he, he made the sacrifice because he was scared and he was nervous. And he simply wanted to appease his men from scattering. And you can almost see this scene of like, probably blood still covered after the sacrifice. And then here comes Samuel bebopping up the road off the horizon. And there's Saul. And he asks him, what have you done? Saul then goes on to blame the men for scattering. He blames Samuel for being late. Anyone except himself for this poor decision, this, this sin. He was blatantly, this was Samuel's job. Not Saul's. In his worry, Saul puts victory and excuses above God. Let's go look at David. David, in a moment of worry, this is in 1 Samuel 24, 1 through 7. If you don't know much about the history of Saul and David, it was quite the tumultuous relationship. Right now, Saul is hunting David for his life. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he told uh, he was told David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and, and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in that same cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay, a, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. David did not choose to save Saul's life, to preserve Saul's life because Saul was a good man. David didn't choose not to kill Saul because he thought he would hand over the keys to the kingdom peacefully. David did not kill Saul because he thought he would stop hunting him. David did not kill Saul because he loved and honored God so much. And if you pay attention to the text, not only was he not going to 
kill Saul, his, his conscience was stricken by merely cutting a piece of fabric from his robe. And he told his men, no, I know that I'm God's anointed. Like, I am the next king of Israel. He knew that. But he wasn't going to take matters in his own hand. God's going to have to work that out. I am not touching Saul because not, of who, not, of, not for Saul's sake, but for God's sake. I so honor and love and trust God Almighty, that I am not going to do that. Despite David's worry, he, he honors God. Our last emotional state, and these are all things that we experience, celebration and worry, but this is the most near and dear, I think, when it comes to the heart of God, and that is of, of Repentance. In 1 Samuel 15, 13 through 15, we're going to kind of skip around just for the sake of reading a long text, but we're going to skip around a little bit. When Saul reached him, when Samuel reached him, excuse me, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. By the way, his instructions were to completely wipe out these people, livestock, everyone. But Samuel said, well, what then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, well, the, 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 the soldiers, you know, brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the, all the rest. He then goes on in those in-between verses to say, as you didn't obey God's word. And Saul once again is arguing with them. I, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Saul said to Samuel, this is finally, this is a few verses later. Saul's finally starting to catch on here. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel." As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. I'm going to chop this up into three components. This pre-repentant component has Saul in a complete blatant disregard to God's wishes. He knew what he was supposed to do. He, he, re, he said it. He said what his mission was. So he knew what God had commanded him to do. He just didn't do it. He was the king. How, how could you say, the soldiers this, the soldiers that? You're the king. 
Then he keeps the king alive. He keeps the choice livestock alive. He completely disregards God's wishes. And then during repentance, he makes excuses. It's the soldiers. They wanted to keep the choice livestock because they wanted to sacrifice them to you. And then post-repentance, this is the saddest part to me. It's so sad, it's comical to some degree, but it's, it's just... In these scriptures, go back and read this story for, for its entirety. What you find is that Saul has now been told, I am going to, uh, his kingdom is going to be taken from him. This is a sad moment, but Saul is almost completely oblivious to it. And all he cares about is that he wants Samuel to walk with him in front of the Israelite people and the elders so that everything looks good, so that everything looks right. In repentance, Saul's heart is riddled with disregard of God's instructions, full of excuses, and a desire simply to look good. I would almost argue this is not repentance. But in all that, this desire to simply look good, make excuses, a disregard for God's instructions is where Saul's heart was during this moment of repentance, really this this crucial moment of being king. Let's go look at a story of David. This is probably, of all the texts that that we've gone through, this is probably the most well-known text. So Nathan is on the scene in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7, and we'll skip to verse 13. And Nathan comes to David after David's famous sin. Remember I said David's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination? David had just sinned with Bathsheba and had killed Uriah. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep and cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And hearing this, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Some some verses then would go on and talk about what the ramifications were for this sin. But the first time David speaks, he says this, And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And if you read on further, we won't, but if you read on further, there's mourning and there's deep sorrow and repentance that looks honestly very unkingly, but David doesn't care. You know, David's sin is brought front and center, and his heart is pricked. He meets his sin without excuse or desire to look good. He accepts responsibility for what he's done, period. In repentance, David's heart was pricked to the core, 
and he did not care how his repentance looked to anyone except God. So back to our question. Oh, you got it too early. That's okay. What made David a man after God's own heart? You can read all different commentaries and you can do the reading yourself. If you don't have a Bible study now, this is a phenomenal study. Go read 1 Samuel. Start with Saul. Read. Eventually, David will enter scene. And what a study that is. I think you'll get a lot of heart message and you can get all kinds of other lessons from that. So if you don't have a Bible study, that's a great place to start. But in my reading of this, of, this, of these stories and others, this is where I landed. This is why I thought... David was described after a man after God's own heart. It's because David's gaze was up. Saul looked all around him at what people would think about how it would make him look, about how, what it would do for his kingdom, what it would do for his family. All the while, David's, he looked up. He had an audience of one. Saul looked at everything else. And I, I believe he did look at God, but it was not an audience of one. David's audience was one. His gaze was up. And I believe that is the simplistic reason why David was considered a man after God's own heart. There's a great proverb in chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Not your hands, not your feet. You can't habit your way to godliness. You can't do everything right all the time. It start everything else. Everything comes from your heart. Everything flows from it. Whether you're in a moment of celebration or worry or repentance or somewhere in between. I want you to think, take inventory of where, where is your heart? Where is it positioned? Where is it, is it open to what God has? Is it, is it open to changing, to not being perfect, but being open to what God has placed on your heart? No matter what emotional state you might be in right now. I pray that this morning you can kind of take inventory of, of where your heart is. And if it's not in the right place, or if it is in the right place, be thankful that it's in the right place and keep it there. And if it's not in the right place, this is a great time to kind of pray where you stand. This is a great time to come up and pray with the elders and, and really focus in on where is my heart posture? Where is, what is my heart looking at? What is my heart focused on? Where, who is my audience I challenge you this morning with that very thing. Take, take inventory of where your heart is while we stand and while we sing.